Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the housing crunch here in British Columbia. Now, talk about some record numbers as well. Immigration numbers in Canada, way up. 437,000 new permanent residents in 2022. Those numbers just out from the federal government. That's over 1,000 new Canadians arriving in the country each and every day. Now, we need new citizens. We need new Canadians. Have a listen to Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser here. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labor force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable. Uh, my view is that Canada is uniquely positioned in the world uh, to use immigration to achieve these outcomes. Okay, but do we have the infrastructure? Do we have enough schools? Do we have en- enough hospitals? And do we have enough housing. Let's talk to BC Housing Minister Ravi Kalon about that. Minister, thanks for coming on today. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for doing this. Now, I know that this is a concern for you, right? Canada has set some very ambitious immigration targets. We expect to have record immigration for the next two, three years as well. Do we have enough housing for all these new Canadians, and what are your concerns there? Well, I'll say, Mike, that I agree with that clip that you shared from Minister Fraser, which is we do need immigration. I mean, we are projecting over a million job openings over the next 10 years, uh, and uh, we do need, uh, we have an aging population, so we need people, no doubt about it. Um, But, you know, the concerns I've raised is that uh, we need to do that in order to be successful. We need to ensure that we have housing for folks that are here. But when we welcome people here, we got to ensure that there's uh, the housing for them to be uh, successful as well. And so, uh, you know, what I've suggested uh, to the federal government is let's work together. And I'm not saying we're going to come up with a formula and you have to live with it. I'm saying let's work together. Let's plan out what that number looks like. Let's plan out, let's give provinces a little bit of control over the numbers, but let's plan out what that means in, as far as housing starts. And, and t- if we need to tie some of these numbers to both affordable units coming online as well as housing starts so that we can drive the change in our systems that we need to, to be successful in the, in the broader goals that we have across the country. Okay, and, and you don't feel that you're getting that kind of cooperation from Ottawa right now, is that right? Well, I mean, they got out of the housing game in the 90s, and uh, and they just haven't come back. And we're paying the price. You know, the chickens are coming home to roost. Decades of underinvestment in housing has led us to the challenge we have right now. And we have a growing population. The units are not coming online at the same rate. Uh, and that's why we're seeing rates go up. That's why we're seeing such a housing crunch. That's why we have to announce the, the half-a-billion-dollar fund we announced yesterday to protect units. So we don't have more people that are becoming vulnerable. And, and so, yeah, we need them back in the game, and, and they're not there right now. 
Okay, well, let me play a, a clip here for you from your federal counterpart. This is the federal housing minister, Ahmed Hussein. And he says, look, we, the feds want to be there to help build all this new housing for all the new Canadians arriving into our country. Here's what he has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. We have the fastest growing population in the G7 uh, countries, but we have very low supply. And so we're incentivizing that through uh, partnerships, through programs like the Housing Accelerator Fund which will be about investing in the capacity of local governments to unlock additional housing supply. Okay, local governments. I don't know. That sounds a little like passing the buck a bit to me. I mean, if you take a look at some of these immigration targets, Minister, going forward this year, 465,000. Next year, 485,000. 2025, 500,000 new immigrants to Canada. Do you think that we can build all this housing? I do believe we can build this housing. And, you know, Minister Hassan, he, I think he understands the problem. I think he understands how the magnitude of the problem. But it's going to come with resources in order to solve the problem. And, you know, the Accelerator Fund, uh, you know, we haven't seen the dollars yet. Uh, in notion, notionally, I understand what they're trying to do. I think uh, when the dollars start coming, that will be helpful. But we, we need a lot more than that. And uh, and it's going to require us uh, thinking about housing in, in a different way. And, and, you know, I just don't I don't see it now. Uh, even if they were doing it with local governments, they're not seeing it either. And so, you know, my message to them has been, hey, you got to get to the you got to get to the table in a big way. You got to get there in a hurry. And I'm not the only one. I've had a meeting with all the ministers of the housings uh, from across the country. Every one of them is talking about the same challenge. And, and, and Mike, don't get me wrong. We're not saying federal government come here and fund it all. That's what we're saying. We're our budgets are we've increased the housing uh, budgets by six hundred percent when we formed government, uh, and and you know those units that we announced when we formed government are just coming online now, and so we have uh, a process problem where it takes five years to get permits to build housing. No doubt about it. Accelerator fund will help with that, but what we need is them to get into the game and even match us dollar for dollar. Yeah. They used to come in at seventy percent. They're not doing that anymore. They're Do not, you- not in the earth. When you take a look at these immigration numbers, record record high last year, huge immigration numbers going forward, do you think that the the number of Im- new immigrants to Canada is too high, or do, are you are you sad? Are you comfortable with those numbers and those targets right now? Oh, I'm comfortable with the numbers because you know right. we have an aging population. Our numbers are going to start declining by 2030. Our natural population. That's a, that's a troubling sign for our economy. And I've been advocating, yes, we need people. We need people with the skill sets that we need for different ranges of employment. So we need the people. All I'm saying is you've got to build the infrastructure. You've got to build the affordable housing. You've got to invest in health care. You've got to invest in the roads and all those things. And so, yeah. yes, that's great they've got the targets. But let's come in with the dollars to do that work so that everybody can be successful. Quick, quick question for you on the announcement from the government, the BC government yesterday. You, you mentioned it briefly there. Five hundred million dollars to nonprofits to buy up. This is like threatened rental stock. You're worried about you. You need to preserve existing rental units. Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. We we've lost ninety seven thousand. Uh, purpose-built rentals in the last 20-plus years. Uh, and, you know, the good news is, uh, you know, if you look at, let's say, 2012, we were building about 2,000 purpose rental units a year. Right now, this year, we're at over 14,000. Last year, we're over 13,000. But if you're losing units while you're building new ones, you're actually not making any progress. And so this fund is about saving those units, 
um, you know, in making the investments into them to fix them up or whatever it needs to be done, but ensuring that stock is there while we build up uh, new stock. Minister, thank you for your time today. Mike, thanks for having me and stay safe. All right. You heard my conversation there with BC Housing Minister Ravi Kalon. Let's get the opposition's viewpoint on it. BC Liberal MLA Peter Millibar. Very pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Always good to be on, Mike. What did you think of the announcement yesterday from government? Half uh, $500 million here for nonprofits to buy up threatened rental buildings here to preserve them. Is this the right thing to do? Well, I think uh, more importantly, it's a shining example of yet another large announcement by government without any actual um, um, deliverable attached to it. So we don't know how many units they're hoping to target. Uh, We have a a premier who was the housing minister for two plus years, had been eyeing the premier's chair for the better part of the last nine, ten months, uh, yet has no actual detail on how this is going to actually roll out. So what we're seeing is money getting thrown into a pot, end of your money, um, we then are going to have to wait to see uh, what type of board or adjudication process gets put into place, what type of rules are going to be attached to that, the speed that they could turn around and actually approve something for a nonprofit. Because if you're building uh, that's not for, up for sale, the seller isn't going to sit around and wait and wait and wait for months on on months as a nonprofit waits to get approved by the government or not. They're going to go to the next purchaser that's already got pre-approvals with their financial institution and move forward. So a lot of unanswered questions here. And uh, you would have thought, uh, you know, given that the Premier was the housing minister uh, previously, he would have had a lot more thought into the, the inner workings of how this is actually going to roll out. And that's on the backdrop of BC Housing, uh, whose NDP handpicked board had to be fired when they dumped a bunch of money into the system uh, without a proper plan. Uh, they had to fire them, and now they've had to initiate a forensic audit, not just an audit, but a forensic audit, because of the message of BC Housing. So, yeah, I've got some pretty big concerns on how this is all going to be handled. What would be a better way forward? I mean, we have this housing crunch right now. Like you said, there's some pretty a lot of vague details here about how this, this new... Pro- initiative is going to work what would be a better way to get going immediately well there's definitely uh, understandable and, and legitimate concerns around rent evictions and and uh, dem- demolitions and and people uh, losing what they've been renting for a very long time at a, at a lower rate because of rents not being able to go up uh, you know at the same as if somebody's moving in brand new in the, in the current market so uh, that's completely understandable. But the concern with this uh, latest announcement right now is uh, here you have, uh, you know, uh, that, that $500 million. It sounds like it's a one-time uh, injection of money that's coming on out of the surplus, uh, the unexpected surplus. So it's going to sit in a pot uh, to be accounted for before the fiscal year end. Uh, but then it's going to be dispersed out. But what comes after that? Is there is there's no future-looking $500 million in, in last year's budget for for next year's fiscal or the following year's fiscal. So if you actually look at the overall impact of this uh, over the course of, of uh, this, the money going out the door, it's going to have very little uh, meaningful impact to any any uh, numbers of units out there. Uh, the minister talks about over the last 30 years, so 97,000 uh, units have, have left the rental market. That's about 3,000 right. a year. Uh, this might account for one out of 30 years worth of, of that if we're lucky. So, uh, again, I think we have to view it with a little bit of skepticism and, and ask ourselves, if, if the Premier has had literally almost three years now as the housing minister slash Premier, 
to think on ideas that he would like to do to impact housing. Why was there so little detail with this uh, type of a proposal yesterday? I understand he didn't necessarily know if he had dollars up until a few days ago. Uh, certainly he should have had enough time to think on how a program like this could work if he was ever fortunate enough to have dollars to implement. What do you think about, this is a difficult housing market to say the least. I mean, we're in a, in a difficult situation here. The crunch is on and it seems like it's only going to get worse or even more pressured as we go forward, especially when you take a look at the record high immigration rate to Canada. 437,000 new uh, Canadians arriving in the country last year. It's more, uh, it's more than a thousand people a day arriving in Canada. And take a look at these numbers going forward. 465,000 is the target this year. 485,000 new immigrants next year. 500,000 new Canadians 2025 arriving in the country. Where's all this housing supposed to come from? I mean, I was listening to the federal housing minister sort of saying, well, we need municipalities to start building, get stuff going. You've got the provincial minister pointing his finger at the federal government saying, you guys better help out and build this housing. What is your confidence level here on getting enough housing built for all these new Canadians arriving? Well, I don't have confidence that government in and of themselves are going to be able to keep up the pace and build them. And and that's part of the problem here. You have a premier that continually uh, whacks any any developers or uh, uh, housing builders over the head, calling them evil, essentially, and, and, uh, you know, in it strictly for profit. Well, if they don't make profit, uh, um, they're not going to build the next project. And so what we really need to see is we need to see help for municipalities uh, to expedite things, to get... uh, um, density put into areas where they're planning for density to get uh, building permits moved through and, and those processes streamlined and uh, and brought up faster. But what they need is help with capacity in those planning departments. They have worker shortages just like everyone else does. So you have planning departments that are short-staffed. Uh, that creates backlogs. You have a desperate need for infrastructure increases in terms of water and sewer projects. We see scarce little uh, help for municipalities over the six years that the NDP have been in, in government um, in terms of helping municipalities fund future growth and, and expansion of water and sewer and road networks and things that are needed to come with the growth. Uh, it's great that they, they want to look at things like uh, high-speed transit, but in large parts of even the lower mainland, um, you know, it takes more than just the transit corridor to make that growth happen. And so we need to have those those ways to help municipalities at the same time. So Simply making an announcement to pulling out half a billion dollars with no actual plan, uh, no benchmark that we can judge it on, uh, on numbers of units this is expected to deliver. Um, you know, you think about it, even if you divide that by $100,000 per unit, that's 5,000 units total. And that's assuming no uh, administrative charges or anything like that to try to manage this fund uh, just to try to offset the cost of a purchase. It's It's not going to... Um, it'd be the, the silver bullet the Premier is trying to, to make it sound to be. Okay, we're going to watch it closely. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it. Great, thank you, anytime. All right, let's talk about that chronically congested and clogged Massey Tunnel now, one of the worst traffic bottlenecks in the lower mainland, and the plan to replace it. Now, remember the current plan announced by B.C. government last year, a little over $4 billion to build a new tunnel to replace the existing tunnel. Remember the previous Liberal government had promised to build a bridge instead to replace the Massey Tunnel. Check out what... 
liberal leader Kevin Falcon is saying now, doubling down once again this week in a new interview, that if if he has any say over it, if he becomes premier after the next election, he's willing to put the brakes on this new tunnel and go back to plan A, build that bridge instead. This is not the first time he has said this. Have a listen to Falcon here talking to me on an earlier show. They want to do this crazy idea with the tunnel. They're going to be stuck in the environmental assessment process for the next five years. Nothing will have gotten done. That's why I'm going to go back to the bridge idea. We can dust off the old plans, update them, and get that thing built. Okay, dust off the old plans, build the bridge instead. Let's check in with B.C. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Minister, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, so you got Fleming, or you got so you got <laughs> Kevin Kevin Falcon, Kevin Falcon, yeah. the Liberal leader, doubling yeah. down again this week. He would cancel your tunnel, go back to the bridge idea instead. What do you say to him? I say we would just revitalize the same issues that divided uh, Metro Vancouver. The bridge plan was thoroughly unpopular, especially with Richmond. So. It's a very strange political strategy for Mr. Falcon if, if he's trying to you know, win seats out that way that his party has lost. Uh, so I don't understand it on that level. But it's also not a good argument if he's trying to say it will save time because he will have to go into the very same environmental assessment process that he criticizes the tunnel for being currently within. Um, by the way, it's not five years from now uh, when the certificate will be issued. The process will be completed next year in 2024. Uh, but he would literally have to go back to the drawing board. He'd have to rip out the Steveson interchange, which is being constructed right now, um, which would not be incompatible with the old bridge. And look, the, the old bridge was controversial for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which was the thing was four kilometers long. You don't build bridges often yeah. when you're making a crossing over a river that's at sea level. Uh, you have to go up 63 meters. Uh, that's a very tall building in terms of height. That's a lot of ramping and incline for trucks. Uh, we've just been through uh, some some understandable complaints about uh, weather impacts on some of our bridges. Those would be issues that would not be an issue with the tunnel. So he never mentions all of that. Um, and uh, it, it's, you know, I, I get it. I know the opposition wants to make politics on these types of things, but what we want to do is deliver uh, on a plan. We've had, we're having very productive discussions with the federal government. They understand how important Highway 99 is to our north-south trade. The prime minister has been very clear that he wants to repair the relationship with President Biden that the previous president tarnished in terms of uh, Canada relations. And goods move on this important corridor. It's very important for YVR well, to have this congestion resolved. And we don't want tolls. And, I, you know, yeah. the next time you have Mr. Falcon on your program, uh, have him promise uh, what he's going to clearly do on tolls. Because he said well, he I did, I did ask him. I did ask him about that. And, okay. and he said they, he would not put a toll on the bridge. Did he? Okay, well, he's changed his yeah. position a few times there. So he goes back yeah. and forth. He still says it's a good idea. So if it's a good idea, then uh, I worry that Mr. Falcon will change his mind yet again. And let me uh, let me ask you about thousands of dollars just for just for trying to get around. Let first, me ask you about affordable house. They get they get nailed. Let me ask you about the the environmental assessment part of this. And we heard in that clip we played from Kevin Falcon there that he feels that putting a new tunnel into the river would have this epic long environmental fight. He said it took five years to get through environmental the assessment process. You're saying it could be done by next next year. How do you figure that can be accomplished when you're talking about sinking this massive concrete tube to the bottom of the, the river with threatened salmon runs going through there? How is that going to get a, 
an environmental approval. Well, that's that's why you do the assessment. How do you mitigate during construction um, some of the disturbances that are that are necessary? So you look at the fish season uh, when salmon are migrating. You you do not build or disturb the the riverbed uh, during those uh, construction timelines. So that that's it. All has to be sequenced to get a certificate. It has to. Uh, take every effort possible to mitigate any um, environmental disturbance. And it also says, you know, post-project, what are the environmental benefits? And there are clear benefits uh, to a tunnel over over a bridge, which has significant pollution impacts forever. A tunnel does during construction, but has a a much lighter impact uh, for the lifetime of of the infrastructure, which which is going to be 75 or 80 years. Let me ask you about the scale of this bridge that the Liberals talked about. You already touched on this briefly. This was going to be a massive bridge. It would be the biggest bridge in British Columbia. And I'm not sure it needed the project needed to be that big. I think maybe this bridge was too big that they had in mind. But one of the reasons that it was so large was they said they wanted it to be able to put rapid tra- rapid light rail transit over this bridge. So effectively, you could run a SkyTrain over this bridge. You can't do that with your tunnel. Doesn't that kind of constrict future growth in the region? Yeah, again, the facts aren't correct on this, uh, Mike. There was never a plan by the region to have SkyTrain technology. Uh, they talked about compatibility. Uh, yeah. so that's, that's a big difference. Um, but when you look at the dispersed populations that are serviced by Highway 99 and you look at the dominant land use adjacent to the highway, it's it's agriculture. It's ALR. This, this is not, you know, dense nodes of, you know, what we're trying to do, for example, in the Surrey Langley Skytrain, which is a 16-kilometer uh, project that's that's currently underway, is build, you know, fairly dense, complete, livable communities around each each of the stations. You would not have that with Skytrain. And, and TransLink and Metro Vancouver said, actually, what we want is rapid bus technology. It will carry far more passengers and we'll be able to exit and enter the highway at significant points where people are trying to go, like, for example, Sawasan, or to the ferry, um, or to uh, other parts of South Surrey and White Rock. Okay, let me ask you about another new complaint here that has surfaced with regard to the new tunnel project, and I know you're familiar with this. I'm going to play, Let's play a clip here of Dylan Kruger, city councillor in Delta. He was on yesterday's show, and they're saying, look, we want an overpass built as part of this project on River Road area in order to help the commuters in in the Ladner area. They say this overpass was part of the tunnel plan by the Liberals. It's fallen off the table, disappeared here. They want that overpass built. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday, the Minister. I'll get your thoughts. Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger yesterday. Our staff estimate this is a $40 million at most uh, overpass on the scope of a $4 billion-plus project. That's less than 1%. It's essentially a rounding error on this project. So we want to make sure, rather than doing this 10, 15 years from now at double the cost, as has happened with other projects, let's get it right and have that economies of scale and get it done right off the bat. Are you you willing to commit to building this overpass as part of the project, Minister? Well, we're we're under discussion about that right now. We have a we have a task force on this project, which includes Delta. I've spoken many times with the mayor of Delta. Um, mayor Harvey understands that it is not as simple as perhaps his 
uh, council colleague has just described it, but uh, we understand um, the aspirations to include that in the project. It was, by the way, not part of the Liberal Bridge project. It was an exit. It was not a, a, a connection. It, it might have been possible to do post-project, and they may have hinted that they were going to do it. Um, but what I've said to to uh, my friends in, in, in Delta is that uh, you know we we appreciate their council's view and their aspirations to densify Ladner. Uh, obviously, Premier EB has an interest in building ho- housing supply in a, around the region and around the province for that matter. And we like to connect that with infrastructure upgrades and improvements uh, of the like of which this project represents or the Surrey Langley Skytrain, as I just mentioned. So, so you're, so you're not on real- the table is what I'm okay. saying. It's on the table. Yeah. But it's also, it's also, I think, uh, an additional point for our friends, the federal government, who committed to this project twice through two election cycles. Prime Minister's been very explicit that he, he understands how important Highway 99 is and this tunnel project is. And uh, Minister Qualtra, who represents the Delta area, is a big supporter of this project and has also made very explicit commitments to it. So, so these things are possible, and we're looking forward to confirming the federal government's uh, contribution uh, to this important project in the very near future. Okay, we're following it closely, to say the least. Thank you for your time today. Mike, thanks for having me. In the whole history of really dumb infrastructure decisions, this one will end up ranking up there right, right with the NDP's fast ferries, I'll tell you right now. It is unbelievable to me that we are going to have to wait another almost 10 years for them to produce an eight-lane tunnel. Okay, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon there on an earlier show talking about the Massey Tunnel replacement. Now, remember the timeline on this. The previous Liberal government wanted to build that huge bridge to replace the tunnel. The NDP said, no, we're not doing that. They scrapped that. They want to build a new tunnel instead, $4 billion. And Kevin Falcon, the new Liberal leader, saying once again this week that, look, if I become in charge here, uh, we'll go back to plan A. We'll cancel this tunnel, go back to the bridge idea. Let's check in with Liberal MLA Ian Payton on the line now. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Uh, good morning, Mike. Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. I, I just spoke to the Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, who says that this is, you know, it would be crazy to put the brakes on this project again. Got to go forward with the bridge. Do you, how likely is it, do you think, if the Liberals did form power in the next election a few years down the road here, that you could go back to the bridge, or will it be too too late by then? Well, I find it laughable that the uh, the Transportation Minister Fleming uh, has come out and said, oh, it would be a, a terrible thing uh, for the BC Liberals to go back to the bridge concept when it was his government that came into power in 2017 and for only political reasons killed the bridge and so they did the exact same thing. We had already spent $100 million getting uh, prepared to build this bridge with piles that were driven and hydro lines being moved and hi- widening Highway 99, and they yeah. killed the project. So, you know, I-, I don't know where he's come from talking about that. But obviously nothing has happened. I mean, they've been in power for almost six years now. We've seen absolutely nothing happening with any signs of a tunnel going in. And so, of course, uh, if we get into power, back into power, which we will in a couple of years, we'll put the bridge back into play. Okay, you have made the point frequently that you think this idea of sinking another concrete, big, huge concrete tube to the bottom of that river to put another tunnel in there would be an environmental nightmare and it could produce an environmental fight that could last for years. The minister just told me he expects environmental approval for a new tunnel next year. You, You don't think that's realistic? 
Absolutely not. I don't know where he comes up with that figure. I mean, look at uh, Robert's Bank, the expansion of, uh, you know, Terminal 2. That's taken five, six, seven years, and they still haven't come up with an environmental assessment uh, decision yet. So, um, you know, like I said, Mike, many, many times, maybe in 1959, you plunk concrete tubes in the bottom of the Fraser River, but you certainly don't do it nowadays with salmon and sturgeon and all the marine life. It's an environmental nightmare to, to put a massive concrete tube back in the bottom of the Fraser River. Well, well, he just told me that you ha- what you have to do is you have to time it according to salmon migration schedules, right? So you don't you don't put the tube in the bottom of the river while salmon are migrating. You do it at another time of the year. Well, I mean, that makes no sense. What are you going to, you know, put two out of eight tubes in the river and then take a break for two or three months while salmon are spawning? Like, it just... It's nonsensical, some of these comments that, that he's making. Okay, let me ask you about the city of Delta here now asking for an overpass to be built as part of the new tunnel that's been promised by the NDP government. So this would be a $40 million add-on for an overpass to assist with commuters there in that region. Do you support adding that to the project? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, you know, of course, I was on Delta City Council for many years before I got uh, into provincial politics. And part of our community plan for the future was trying to figure out how we could get a sec- second exit out of Ladner. Because yeah. right now, everything feeds into Ladner Trunk Road to get onto Highway 17 uh, to get to the to the tunnel. And this was a no-brainer to be able to get people out of Ladner from a different way. And it all it would take, and it was part of the plan when we came forward with the bridge idea, that was always part of the plan that we would get this overpass so that we could get out of Ladner differently over towards what you might recall was the old town and country hotel area over there. And then you could get onto the, uh, the, the, the new bridge. Okay, so I asked the minister about this. He said that he, he didn't rule it out. He said it's on the table. They're looking at it. Do you think they should make a firm commitment to build that overpass? Well, absolutely. I mean, okay. I was on the phone this morning to my colleague, uh, Councillor Kruger from Delta, and that was always part of the original plan with the bridge uh, under the BC mm-hmm. Liberal Party was the the overpass to come out of Delta would have been built. And now they're saying even the NDP government did a presentation to the Delta City Council and to Metro Vancouver. And the slideshow obviously showed that the, that this bridge, uh, you know, coming out of Delta to connect River Road was part of the project. Now they've taken it off. Okay. Ian, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's talk about Canada's drive to bring in EV vehicles and the very ambitious targets here to go electric. So let's take a look at some of these targets here. By 2026, hopefully 20% new vehicle sales. That's the target announced by Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo. And go forward a little bit further out, 2030, 60% of all sales to be electric vehicles and the ultimate target 2035 100% every passenger vehicle sold in Canada to be electric is this achievable is it possible 
Let's discuss it now with my guest, Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Flavio, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's talk about some of these targets here, Flavio. And first, let's have a listen to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about hitting these EV targets. And then I'll ask you if this is realistic or not. Let's have a listen. We're moving forward with specific targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in, uh, in 2026, 60% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. And with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it, would surprise, it wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time. Okay, never mind hitting these targets. He thinks we can get this done early maybe even beat those targets. Flavio, what do you think? I mean, I get along with the Prime Minister on the EV file, and we've done a lot of good things together, including chasing investment. Um, And those are very hard to land, uh, the manufacturing investments. Uh, That chase uh, will pale in comparison to these targets. Mm. You can't get to 20% 2026 because the product won't be there. And you can set them as targets, um, which... I mean, your listeners might know, we just debuted a Canadian, all-Canadian EV prototype at the biggest consumer electronics show in the world. Like, the technology exists. You can do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is they have to be built in production quantities with batteries that, so far, in spite of the fact that Canada is number two in, uh, in uh, the critical minerals that go into making these batteries, the mining will not produce the lithium required until 2026, 2027, 2028. So if you force automakers to provide the product um, required to get to 20% by 2026, they will buy batteries from China because that is the world source for it. And they will be vehicles not manufactured in Canada. And if the, right now what the suggested regulation says, if the automakers don't make it to 20%, every vehicle that doesn't make your 20% quota will be subject to a $20,000 penalty. So, oh. so, so then you won't sell that car. And if you won't sell that car, the, your percentage drops even further. I mean, it's, um, I like what, I think we're all in for electrification. But right. you know, for those of your listeners and the ones that, that live across the street from my office here who live in uh, multifamily homes, apartment buildings, condos, townhouses, don't have street parking. Why would you buy an electric car you can't charge? So we've got a lot of work to do before anything looks like 100% by 2035. Right. I say that, I say that as someone who's staked my reputation on building them. Sure, sure. No, I'm sure. I'm sure you and the your people you represent would love to b- build all these cars. Speaking to Flavio Volpe, automotive parts manufacturers association. Yeah, forget about a hundred percent. I think it could be tough to meet twenty percent here by this twenty twenty six deadline. Flavio, like, what percentage of new vehicle sales are electric right now? Well, they're about five percent nationally. They're higher in BC and Quebec because there's an incentive. Uh, uh, offered by the provinces, which I think are very helpful, except that um, they're not vehicles made in Canada. They're vehicles uh, made, for the most part, in California uh, with batteries from China uh, or made in Germany with batteries from China. So it's what are your objectives? Uh, uh, If your objective is to spur the industry and you've made billions of dollars of investment in the industry, then you probably should consult with the industry on what's possible. 
Yeah, I cer- certainly agree with you. Let me ask you about the the capacity to to build these vehicles. So, if we're talking about ramping up this fast for all new vehicle sales to be electric, where let's talk about the batteries first of all. You mentioned that they'd have to get them from China right now. These, you know, you hear a lot about these rare earth minerals and the mining that's required to to get the raw materials to make these batteries. Can we dig this stuff up? Can we mine this stuff in Canada, or do you have to go outside of Canada to get this stuff? Well, we can do it in Canada, but your okay. listeners who know natural resource extraction and permitting, uh, people who are in the LNG business, to people who are in the oil and gas business, to people who are in the lithium business, it's about 10 years worth of permitting uh, between when you find a resource and when you can actually produce it. So in Canada, one company, Sayona Mining in Quebec, is going to deliver lithium this year. The next scheduled one is in 2026, uh, and that's the rocks. I mean, they got to be refined, and then they got to be turned into cells and into batteries. So yeah. that first target uh, is impossible to reach. It won't happen. Um, I said to the minister responsible, we might as well start handing the penalties out now. Can uh-huh. we do it for 2030 and 2035? Yeah, we should be a global powerhouse in this thing. But if we force the companies to bear the brunt of it without investing in the infrastructure or the mining, um, uh, then what might happen is uh, in their next investment or the third investments in the space and the fourth investments, they'll just do it where um, reasonable governments are partners. Okay, how would these penalties work? You touched on that briefly. Like if we don't hit these targets, then the the companies would be would be penalized and that would get passed on to consumers? Is that, is that your fear here? Yeah, I mean, it's not even my fear. It's how it's written. So if you, yeah. if you sell 100,000 cars a year and you sell 100,000 in 2026, 20,000 of them must be electric vehicles. Right. If the consumers who are free to choose, choose 19,000 of them, then on the other 1,000, you have to pay a $20,000 fine on each. $20,000 times 1000 is a $20 million penalty for the sales arm of a company who uh, it, it doesn't – the consumers choose your product, not the other way around. We don't choose consumers. And so it's – that's if you come within 1000 You know, if you come within 10000 you're talking about the types of, of, of sums. You, you, you couldn't possibly pass that along to the consumer. No, right. Uh, if you took your $20 million fine and put it on 90,000 uh, other vehicles, um, I bet 90,000 other people will look at the dealership across the street. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't sound sustainable or realistic at all. Let me ask you about the, uh, the infrastructure for charging the vehicles. I mean, we hear this a lot. Do we have enough electrical power generation in Canada to charge up all these new electric vehicles? Do we have enough charging stations across the country to, to charge these batteries? Well, look, um, about one in two Canadians have a car. And I want your listeners to think about the car that they have and where they get their gas. Picture the last time you got gas or you were at a gas station the last time you saw one. If all of those cars are electric cars, look around. Think about the last time you saw an electric charger uh-huh. uh, or a bank of chargers. And the eye test, never mind if I give you the numbers, the eye test fails immediately. And the numbers are dismal. You know, we're at um, tens of thousands of chargers uh, as the new commitment for the build out across the country 
for a country that has a fleet of about 25 million cars on the road right now. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is the government's plan to rapidly increase the number of charging stations across the country? I mean, is that part of the, of the targets here for electrification that we're, that we're going to build these charging stations? It is not because the federal government it is, does not deliver the power, nor do they have the jurisdiction uh, over uh, uh, power supply in this country. And they made a commitment to uh, several uh, tens of thousands of chargers across the country, which to my math leaves us millions short. Yeah, a million short. What about the actual power capacity that we generate here in Canada? You know, we had a huge fight here in British Columbia over a, a new hydroelectric dam, the Site C Dam. It sounds like if we're going to go 100% electric here, we're going to need a lot more electricity here to power up all these batteries. Where's all this power coming from? Well, I think it's a it's twofold. We have to look at whether you need more power supply, and I think that from a generating point of view, you may not need more. But on the distribution side, you know, the 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 power lines that go into your neighborhood, that go into your house, whether they're above ground or underground, and the transformer on your street are really rated for a certain amount of power uptake. And if everybody on the street plugged in a 100 kilowatt uh, battery or two at the same time to charge at night, you blow the transformer. So every single distribution company across this country is doing an assessment of uh, what happens at 10, 20, 50, 80% uh, uptake. And uh, do we have enough infrastructure? The answer is no. How much should we put on there? And then they all are going uh, the municipal ones are going to their provincial regulators. The, the the provincial distributors are are going to their like in Ontario, the Ontario Energy Board, asking permission to build that capital, yeah, and then put it put it into your rates. And so, it's not there yet. There's a lot of thoughtful work that needs to be done. But um, 2026 is three years from now, and if we get to uh, on a national level to uh, halfway to the target set by the government. I'll buy everybody who's listening their own electric vehicle. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, you're very confident in your prediction there. Okay, last question for you. You've given us a real shot of reality here on these targets today, yeah. Flavio. Do you therefore think that the federal government should back off on some of these some of these targets like at least the 2026 target? I mean, if it's impossible to meet 20% new vehicles EVs by 2026, I mean, what's the point of sticking with this target? Should they drop it right now? Yes, and I've said as much publicly and privately, and they're in a 75-day consultation period. I'm confident that they're listening, not just to this interview, but to all the different uh, times that we've weighed in on it. And we're going to support them with some real numbers and show them what's possible. And then, of course, governments always like stretch targets, but let's make sure that we're stretching between two solid points and not just stretching an elastic that's going to fling us back in the face. Lavio, thank you for your time today. It's great to have you on today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's talk about one of my favorite unsolved mysteries, and this is maybe the greatest unsolved crime ever, the mystery of D.B. Cooper, the only unsolved hijacking in American history. Now, everyone knows the basics of this story by now, I think. 1971, a man who identifies himself as Dan Cooper boards a Northwest Airlines flight in Portland, Oregon. He later bails out of the plane in a parachute somewhere over Washington State 
with $200,000 in ransom money, never to be seen again. What an incredible story, unsolved till this day. I've got D.B. Cooper expert Eric Eulis standing by. First, let's go back in time and listen to how it sounded that very night on the nightly news. Have a listen to this. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plain briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, but the hijacker had given detailed flight instructions. The rear stairwell was open all the way. It arrived at Reno in shreds. The crew, the crew, here being debriefed by the FBI, was told to fly low over Oregon's flatlands with the flaps down. The speed dropped to 200 miles per hour. Somewhere, the hijacker parachuted away with the money. Okay, what a story. It continues to fascinate until this day. Let's discuss now with my guest, Eric Eulis. He's one of North America's top experts on the D.B. Cooper story. Author of Sky Ghost, Unraveling the Enigma of D.B. Cooper. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Hey, Eric, I'm really interested in asking you about the Canadian connections to this story. There are some theories out there that maybe D.B. Cooper was Canadian. Who knows? Maybe he was even someone from right here in Vancouver. Before we dig into that, Eric, let me ask you, first of all, why do you think this story continues to fascinate? Like, what drives your passion for it? I think there are a few things, uh, not the least of which is that it, uh, the era, you know, the, the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, that Mad Men era type of thing was just got kind of a cool vibe to it. Uh, also, the manner in which D.B. Cooper conducted himself, which uh, w was very James Bond-esque. And I think that sort of uh, machoism type of thing resonates with people. And at the end of the day, there wasn't anybody physically harmed. In fact, most of the passengers uh, weren't, weren't even aware that there was a skyjacking underway until it was actually over. So, uh, you know, I think that also contributes to people's willingness or, or just fascination with, uh, with this D.B. Cooper mystery. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of him as kind of a, a hero. Like you say, no one was hurt or no one lost their lives here. He got away. And I think a lot of people like the idea of how he got away with this. The uh, One of the big breaks in this story over many, many years of investigation was the discovery of some of the ransom money on the banks of a river in Washington State, right? Can you remind the listeners what happened there, when the, how they found that money? Yeah, on February 10th, 1980, there was a young boy and his family out on uh, the Columbia River in the Vancouver, Washington area, uh, and he happened to unearth three rotted packets of uh, $20 bills uh, totaling six thousand uh, dollars. This was about seven and a half years after the skyjacking. So, how those three separate packets of twenties ended up there, buried in the sand, is you know has been a mystery in and of itself. Uh, but you know, in the later years, it's provided a significant amount of uh, forensic evidence and so forth that people like myself have used to try to figure out exactly what happened to DB Cooper. Yeah, and I've always been very interested in the discovery of of some of that money. 
because there was no other evidence discovered in the area around there, right? Like they didn't find a parachute. They didn't. They obviously didn't find a, a body. They just found the cash. That's so strange. Why do you like? I heard one theory that maybe DB Cooper landed near there in his parachute and maybe buried that money and intended to come back and collect it later. Do you think that maybe that's what happened? I think that's exactly what happened. It's important to know we're talking $6,000 that was found. There's another $194,000 plus a bank bag and parachutes that have never been found. So I think you're exactly right. I think he landed near that area. I think he temporarily buried the cash and everything else. At a later date, came back, uh, presumably under the cover of darkness, retrieved the items or at least retrieved the bulk of the money the three packets that were left behind notwithstanding, and that accounts for uh, why we haven't found anything and uh, why we have uh, $6,000 found on the, on the beach in uh, 1980. Speaking to Eric Eulis, he's one of the top experts on the D.B. Cooper mystery. So, Eric, let me ask you about the Canadian connections here, because this is an interesting one. It, it was raised in the, uh, the recent Netflix series. I encourage people to check out D.B. Cooper, Where Are You?, in which you were you were prominently featured, Eric, of your research and your investigations. So let's talk about this Canadian angle here. Is it possible? What is what are the evidence that maybe Cooper was a Canadian? Well, there are a couple things that people have pointed to. One of them is the fact that uh, there was a, a comic book, a Belgian Franco comic book called Dan Cooper. Uh, written by a guy named, uh, guy named Albert Weinberg, um, and that was available in, uh, I think, Quebec. I don't know that it was available in other parts of Canada, but it was not available in the United States. So the fact that the comic is named Dan Cooper and the name that the gentleman gave at the ticket counter in Portland was Dan Cooper has caused some to believe that there's some sort of connection there. And there are some similarities in terms of the machoism of this Dan Cooper Royal Canadian Canadian Air Force, you know, uh, skydiver and pilot and everything else. Uh, there's also uh, have been some suspects, one guy in particular, a guy named Wolfgang Gossett, who uh, claimed that he was D.B. Cooper in the later years and that the money was deposited in a safety deposit box in, uh, in Vancouver there, Vancouver, British Columbia. In fact, I believe uh, he claimed that you also was actually at the uh, Great Cup game in 1971. <laughs> Yeah, so, which I, it was in Vancouver. Uh, so there are there are a few things like that that uh, that people have pointed to to suggest there was a Canadian connection. And obviously, this happened in the Seattle area, so it's very close to the Canadian border. Yeah, there was the Grey Cup football game was that year in Vancouver, and part of the FBI files that were later released included a letter sent to the editor of the Vancouver province newspaper where, where I worked for many years. I actually remember speaking to an old time editor that the paper remembered this. They received an anonymous letter supposedly from DB Cooper that said, I enjoyed the gray cup game. I'm leaving Vancouver. Thanks for your hospitality. <laughs> so some people think that's another little clue that maybe he was Canadian, maybe even from Vancouver. Do you place any, uh, any stock in that? Do you think there was? Do you think this Canadian connection is legit? Uh, personally, I do not think that either of those Canadian connections uh, hold water. Uh, that said, I think there's a very real possibility that DB Cooper, whoever this gentleman was, was inspired by a Canadian, specifically a guy named Paul Sinney, who 11 days before the DB Cooper skyjacking uh, actually tried to do the same thing out of Calgary and uh, ended up uh, being unsuccessful. But it's very coincidental that 11 days before D.B. Cooper skyjacking, 
Uh, there was somebody that tried the exact same thing or l- very similar, materially similar, and that's the first time that had ever happened. So I suspected that Cooper was inspired by Paul Sinney, uh, and I believe Paul, if I'm not mistaken, was originally from Victoria and just happened to hear of he, – he dreamed up the idea sitting in his apartment in Victoria, and, and the rest is history, as they say. All right. Who are you indeed? Who was the real D.B. Cooper, the mystery man who hijacked an airline flight in 1971, later parachuted out of the plane with $200,000 in ransom money, never to be seen again? The mystery continues here. The only unsolved hijacking in American history. My guest is Eric Euless. He's a D.B. Cooper expert. His book is Sky Ghost. Unraveling the Enigma of D.B. Cooper. Okay, Eric, there have been lots of theories over the years, lots of suspects about who D.B. Cooper really was. Let's talk about some of the incredible research you've done here on a guy named Vince Peterson. Vince Peterson. Who was this guy and what's his connection here? Uh, Vince Peterson is a guy who uh, was an engineer, a metallurgist who worked at a company uh, that worked at a company called Remcrew Titanium from mid 1950s uh, up through the 70s. Why this is important is because D.B. Cooper left a uh, skinny black clip on tie on board the jet, which was uh, collected by the authorities in 1971 at the time of the skyjacking, but was of little value in recent years. Uh, particles from that tie have been, have been analyzed under an electron microscope, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of particles on the tie, most of which are various alloys of titanium. Uh, alloy titanium, commercially pure titanium, various high grades of stainless steel, rare earth elements, things of that nature, stuff that was very unusual back in the mid-60s and early 70s. Uh, in fact, most of this stuff would have been uh, used exclusively in the aerospace sector. And specifically, there were three very specific particles of a titanium and antimony alloy that's exceptionally rare. And this titanium and antimony alloy was patented and was only produced, to the best of my knowledge, at a company called Remcrew Titanium. It was never commercially produced or disseminated, so it was, existed exclusively at the facility. And Vince Peterson was a gentleman who actually worked at this facility who checks an awful lot of the boxes. In fact, he was pointed out to me by a former supervisor, a guy who's now 90 years old and was Vince Peterson's supervisor, as being uh, as matching the description of D.B. Cooper in a number of areas, not only physically speaking, but Vince Peterson also traveled on occasion to Boeing, uh, and uh, was on the, the manufacturing floor because Rem Crew supplied specialty metals uh, to Boeing as they manufactured the aircraft, including the Boeing 727. So uh, Boeing in uh, Seattle, Boeing uh, in Seattle, right in Seattle. Th- that is correct. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. So wow. it's a very, very intriguing connection. It appears that Vince, uh, rather, it appears that DB Cooper came from specifically the titanium research lab at this Rem Crew Titanium. And importantly, there were only eight gentlemen who worked there. So we've got a very small universe of uh, people who could have plausibly been D.B. Cooper. And, of course, Vince Peterson is the one person who really stands out there. So uh, he's, he's my, I, term, I call him my personal person of interest. I've been <laughs> digging quite a bit into the guy and, and seeing if there's, uh, you know, if, if I can either uh, prove 100% that the guy was D.B. Cooper or prove 100% that the guy was not D.B. Cooper. 
Okay, this is one of the things that I love about your research. You're very meticulous, and you don't go flying off the handle and, and you know, making wild conjectures. I mean, you put together some incredible evidence, and, and once again, you've done it here. Now, this fellow, Vince Peterson, that's very intriguing. Like, he's passed away like many years ago, right? He's dead now. Yeah, he passed away in 2002. Okay, and what about, does he have any uh, surviving family members that have talked? Yes, he has a son who is now 65 years of age. I have uh, talked with his son and met with him personally. His son does not believe his father was D.B. Cooper. He says he just can't envision his father being D.B. Cooper. But uh, honestly, that doesn't surprise me. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, uh, commit criminal acts and and leave others out of the loop. And I think one thing that's very important to remember here is D.B. Cooper was one of a kind. I mean, this guy was the one guy who got away with it. And he got away with it for a reason, because he didn't brag about it, talk about it, reveal too much, that kind of thing. So... Yes. Another, another interesting. Thing, another thing I find really intriguing here in the in the two or th- two or three minutes we got left here, um, the stuff that was left behind by DB Cooper on the plane. You mentioned this tie where they've discovered these microscopic particles on the tie. That is very intriguing. I've also read that there he was a smoker. There were some cigarette butts left there, and also was there a hair a hair discovered? That's correct. There were, uh, there were eight cigarette butts left behind, which were collected, analyzed at Quantico in Virginia in, the early, in 71, 72, but ultimately destroyed because there was no uh, evidentiary value to them for all intents and purposes. They obviously had no idea that DNA was going to be around the corner. Oh. And indeed, there were, there were two hairs. There was a, a hair that came from uh, somebody's head as well as a limb hair that were found uh, on D.B. Cooper's chair. Now, that may have been from D.B. Cooper, may not have been from D.B. Cooper, but those two items were collected and analyzed as well. Interestingly, uh, we do not know where those two hair samples are. We know that they were analyzed back in the early 70s. They were placed within glass slides, and that's all we know. Now, as to where they are, we, we have absolutely no idea, but Obviously, very uh, uh, perspective compelling piece of evidence from a DNA perspective. If we could actually figure out where those two hair samples are, yeah. Imagine if you could get a DNA sample and upload it to a, a public genealogy site or something. Yeah, that would be yes, exciting. Then, but, but there are still some things we're working on. I'm actually currently trying to get access to DB Cooper's tie and and actually uh, uh, for the purposes of trying to pull off DNA in, in one specific area related to the. Uh, tie knot snapper mechanism. I know it's a little complicated, but there's one area in particular that I think may well uh, okay. be housing some of D.B. Cooper's DNA. So, Eric, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.